the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is episode 19. And we are talking about history. History. That's an interesting as a, subject. As a subject taught in schools and universities. And uh, if you've listened to last week's episode on maps, uh, this follows on from, from that and looks at the the academic history syllabus, whether it's at schools or, or universities, as a, a site of power and control um, between national interests on the one hand and neoliberal economic interests on the other. Uh, but why why have we chosen to talk about history? So in the last couple of months, the state of California made news because, um, like all states... In the U.S., California has a huge amount of control over its public school curriculum, um, and they've been rewriting and revamping their curriculum and writing new textbooks. Um, in the age of the internet and social media, this often makes the news. So a few years ago, Texas made the news for writing about slavery in a way that many um, black activists and scholars found deeply problematic, for example. So this is not it's not unique yeah. or new. This is a bigger kind of trend. But this is a particularly interesting conversation for us because mm. California's social studies curriculum, the proposed curriculum, came under fire from... South Asian activists who are members of the diaspora community um, for two specific issues. The first was that they, many Indians in the U.S. felt that the curriculum calling the region South Asia as opposed to India was unpalatable. Yes, And the second is that the curriculum deals with caste and the caste system in a particular way. Yes. Um, So on the first point, the the argument as they used it was that to call India South Asia is is like asking them to change their name. So so the the argument used was the the discourse of identity politics, that, that a person should be able to identify in the way they choose. And describing India as South Asia is uh, stopping them from identifying as Indian and forcing them to identify as South Asia. We have many problems with that argument, as we'll go on to discuss in a second. Uh, and the caste issue was that, uh, and a, a very interesting argument. This so that the Hindu diaspora in in the United States uh, took offence at the way caste was depicted in the school syllabus as a Hindu phenomenon and they wanted it to be described as a geographical phenomenon so divorce it from uh, anything specifically Hindu and think about caste as a problem that affects all religions and all communities in 
South Asia, India. Of course it does, but it is still a Hindu phenomenon. Um, but that's the, the argument that was being used there. It's, it is very interesting. It is, it is a very sophisticated uh, argument um, and, and deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, there's so many things to talk about yeah. here. Um, there's the diaspora and how the diaspora communities work politically yes. and yes. socially. Um, where they fit into kind of discourses in India and about yes. India, and where they fit into discourses in the United States yes. and about the United States. Yes. Um, and there's obvious questions here about education and yeah. the role of yeah. history in education. And, and, and the Hindu rights uh, in India have a, a long and uh, ignoble record of uh, political self-serving political changes to school history syllabuses. So, you know, uh, things about glorifying Hitler, things about Hindu myths being taught as history, uh, uh, taking away anything from history that that says anything good about Muslims, uh, not teaching Urdu literature because it is seen to be Islamic and not, and, and, and so on. Um, so, it, there is a much wider context within India uh, for this debate which is happening in, in the United States and California specifically. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the London mayoral election and we talked about the Zach Goldsmith's, Zach Goldsmith's campaign strategies that targeted Asian communities in London and how they mixed up different yes. communities in London and how the some of the diaspora communities have very different yes. different electoral politics and, yes. and different concerns. And um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this particular subset of the Indian diaspora in the United States, well, who they are. And we spoke last week about how the the Indian diaspora, generally speaking, and certainly the Hindu diaspora, has done well economically. Uh, so it is, you know, generalizing uh, hugely, but it is of uh, it has a certain amount of class privilege. Uh, obviously, it, it faces racism in, in America and Britain the way the way non-white immigrants of of any community do. Um, there is a perception, which is generally true, I, I think, that it is a, a fairly conservative um, body, both in, in political terms and in, you know, religion. Social, ideology, social cultural terms. terms. Um, so uh, we've spoken about Modi quite a lot on, on this, this podcast, Modi being the, the Prime Minister of India from the, from the far-right Hindu nationalist BJP party. Modi has a huge amount of support outside of India among the, among the South Asian diaspora, among the Indian diaspora. It's um, hard because it's we, hard. I always say South Asia. Yes. I have a degree yes. in South Asian studies. Yes. So it's hard to talk yes. about this yes. because the term is what's at stake here. Exactly. Uh, that is not to say that there, there isn't significant proportions of, of Indians abroad who do not support Modi. 
and who have who protested his his arrival. There, there was, uh, but there remains a general perception that the Indian diaspora is is behind Modi and his project to develop India in certain ways. Hence, why Zach Goldsmith could create a pamphlet saying that he supports Modi. Exactly, exactly. Um, there, there are. Uh, I think we might have mentioned this before in person as well that there are various Hindu groups who've supported Donald Trump in America, and there are wonderfully hilarious internet memes of uh, Donald Trump being blessed in Hindu religious ceremonies uh, because somehow they believe that he is good for them. What's interesting, though, is that's in India. Yes. Meanwhile, there's a core contingent of diasporic Indians who are very anti-Trump in the United States. People who feel like Trump might very well try and deport them. Yes. Yes. Um, And that's... So, you know, there there was an Indian Express article, which we'll put in the the comments, uh, in the description, um, which wonderfully tease out the contradictions between the the in the Indian Hindu diaspora who support Modi and don't support Trump because they are so similar. And the recognition of Trump's uh, violent prejudice, which is taking Hindu diaspora communities away from Trump, is matched with an equal lack of recognition of Modi's violent prejudice, which is not directed against them, but directed against Muslims and low-caste communities and so on. Um, so there remains a central contradiction in that, in the, in the existence of this fairly conservative, you know, model good immigrant who are, who are doing well economically successful neoliberal subjects who, when faced with the existing prejudice, find themselves not on the conservative side. It is very interesting. It's interesting as well. I mean, I was asking you a while ago about um, diasporic Americans. Yes. Um, American immigrants around the world who overwhelmingly vote very progressive. Um, I think the Democratic primary abroad among American citizens abroad overwhelmingly supported Bernie Sanders. Um, And and it's... I don't think we have an answer here as to why... We we certainly don't have a, a convincing answer. I mean, I've been thinking about it since you asked me the question about why is it that these two groups of communities, which are you know similarly upwardly mobile, have a similar amount of class privilege, and are similarly uh, geographically situated, located away from their point of origin. Why are they so different in their political leanings? And the only answer I can come up with is that the American diaspora typically does not move away for reasons of self-economic improvement. Ah, okay, yeah. They don't need to. Yeah. Uh, The Indian diaspora typically does. Yeah. Which brings with it a certain amount of political conservatism. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the question of remittances is completely different. Exactly. 
Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm the last person who wants to speak on behalf of the American diaspora. But <laughs> um, I, I can correct you. You, you can correct me. Use uh, my identity to. The, I, I certainly know friends who have taken a decision to leave America because it is too conservative. The Indian diaspora doesn't do that. Yeah. You you never leave India because you think it's too conservative. But, you know, if you are a graduate student in humanities in Texas or Alabama or wherever, you, and you've got a job in Europe, you might not want to go back. Do you see what I mean? There's a, there is a difference. The, the, the motivations for leaving are different. Yes. And therefore your attitude towards hegemonic conservatism back home is different. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's true. There's there's also a kind of um, the educational kind of backgrounds and the kinds of jobs that Americans and, and Indians are doing yes. outside of their home countries are yes. very similar. Yeah. But the economic situation in the home countries are different. Yes. Um, yeah. And so you have the the, I mean, to use really crude old academic terminology about migration, the push and the pull factors, yes. Yes. those are different. Yes. Um, even though the demographics yes. are more similar than they are different. Yes. Yes. And I guess, I mean, part of this speaks to the who are the kinds of people who are able yes. to migrate. Absolutely. And it is, yes. it is of a certain class background. Yes. Yes. But the, the, the way that class is working yeah. is different. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, the way class works in terms of the alignment between class and political positions in America and India seem to be different anyway. You know, the the elite liberal, you know, the, the stereotype of the Ivy League educated East Coast liberal elite seems to be a much more common figure in America than it, than it is in India. The elite in India is more conservative than the elite in America. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's that elite that is moving. Yeah. Um, I feel we've moved away a little bit. From a little the, bit. I think it. What I think is important, though, is is, and what's unique here is okay. that there is a diaspora community here yes. that has successfully lobbied the California yeah. curriculum panel. Yes to instate a certain number of changes yes. in state-funded yes. education curriculum. Yes. they So the textbooks now do say, according to the New York Times article of May 19th, do say India yes. and not South Asia. Yes. That's a huge deal. It is a huge deal. And I, we said in passing about the... the we described the argument that the, these Hindu communities are using... Uh, what certainly we believe is is the real reason for this demand is that they feel the need to disassociate themselves from Pakistan or an Islamic history of South Asia. And the word India has connotations of Hinduism in the word South Asia, in the way the word South Asia doesn't. So even though they are using a very sophisticated discourse of identity politics, like, you know, you can't ask me to change my name, what they're actually doing is 
uh, reinforcing the sense of a Hindu India as being the superior, more important, uh, worthier object of study as an ancient civilization in that region compared to either pre-Hindu civilizations, pre-Aryan civilizations, or the Islamic civilizations. Yes. India. What's interesting, too, is the, the way that the, the caste question comes into play here. Um, because there is... It is quite a selective Hindu history. Yes. Um, th- that at once... Yes. Claims India, India as a as a particular Hindu place, but then denies this key component of Hindu history and Hindu practice, mm. um, and one which is which is fascinating. Many many Hindus have opposed over, you know, over. Yeah. Many many years, yeah. certain kinds of caste practices yes. and and the caste system. It's yes. a it's a fascinating set of institutions yes. and one which has proved, you know, central to yes. pre independence debates about about India and yes. about modernizing India and about independent India. I mean, the you know the Indian Constitution was written by Ambedkar, a, a very famous Dalit thinker, who yes. you know we've talked about yes. before. Um, and there is the possibility, if we're talking about history as a, as, as a discipline that yeah. opens up possibilities for understanding yeah. the past and its relationship to the present, yes. there are opportunities yes. in a curriculum that talks about the caste system, yes. um, which makes it very interesting that yeah. the caste system and Hinduism are being completely divorced here. Yes. Which, you know, of course is, is equally politically motivated because um, the caste system and Hinduism is not divorced. I mean, is it true that other religious communities in India have forms of caste system in their, in their communities? Yes. Is it true that that is because Hinduism is the dominant religion in the, in the region? Yes. You know, the caste system has... At it, as it's uh, the caste system derives from the most dominant religion in the in the region, which is Brahminical Hinduism. Uh, that's that's where it comes from, and to suggest anything other than that is, you know, it's a falsehood. Inaccurate. It's inaccurate. Uh, is um, yeah. Which is the the that argument also plays out in interesting ways in the diaspora because of course, as I think you were saying earlier on, the there is a, a fairly strong politically active Dalit community, diaspora community in, in the United States, and they've taken on this this battle and argued for the need to talk about caste as a Hindu as a specifically Hindu phenomenon. Yes, and to relate it to, to teach um, where those connections lie. So looking at the texts from which the caste system is derived and, and 
making that part of the process of study? Yes, um, I think there's a there are a couple of other uh, stories that we we wanted to talk about in relation to this. Uh, so Paul Johnston, who's the vice chancellor at Queen's University Belfast, got into trouble last week, a couple of weeks ago, when he gave an interview in a newspaper uh, where he was quoted as undermining the importance of teaching history as a subject. The quote was that we do not need 21-year-olds who are experts in 6th century history. Uh, and there is a that that quote and the, the California curriculum story, I think, suggests to me this tension that we mentioned at the start of this, this episode and that we discussed last week between the use of history as the use of, as an academic subject, the use of history on the one hand to try to reinforce the national narrative, reinforce the story the nation likes to tell about itself on the one hand, and the position that history occupies in a world where knowledge is commodified and knowledge is valued depending on the perceived return in terms of pounds and dollars and jobs and skills. Um, so the the rejection of history as an important worthy subject to study comes from the fact that they are more economically relevant subjects which are presumably in this argument more important to teach, you know, maths, science, job creating subjects, uh, which is more important, more relevant, more valuable in this neoliberal education economic system. But those subjects don't allow the nation to tell a story of itself. And those those interests are not always compatible. Yeah. So if you're educating if you're educating a workforce. Yes. Or if you're educating future citizens slash voters. Loyal citizens slash voters who will not challenge your your nation. Yes. And your nation's economic system. Which one takes precedence? Yeah. Um I learnt recently uh, from a colleague, uh, Louisa Ebunige from Manchester Metropolitan uh, University, who works on the Biafran Civil War, the Biafran War, Nigerian Civil War, depending on what word you use. Uh, and she made the point that history is no longer a core subject in the Nigerian school education system. And the reason that that is given for this certainly the public-facing reason that is given for this is, is a lack of resources. So there's an argument being made that other subjects are more important to teach. Uh, but it also allows the powers that be to sidestep a very difficult issue of how do you teach history in a post-Civil War society. Uh, in India and Pakistan, which I know much, much better than I do, do Nigeria, the school history syllabus stops in 1947. So after 1947 in India you have a subject called civics which is we might describe it as constitutional history or you know it's teaching students the rights and responsibilities and the various parts of government and how they function and all of that. In Pakistan after 1947 you have Pakistan studies 
which does the same thing, pretty much, uh, except for Buck's Thumb. So you have an explicit rejection of history as an academic subject in which you discuss, debate, argue the various interpretations that are possible about events that happened in the past. And you, you move away from that to an explicit endorsement of this is the teleological narrative of how our great and glorious nation-state comes into being. Yeah. Except where does that leave what we know as academic scholarship of, of the past, of history? Yeah, I mean, there's a conspiracy theory kind of interpretation, which is, of course, that the, when confronted with alternative narratives the state does everything in its power to shut them down. Um, It's not, it doesn't quite work like that, I don't think. Um, As much as I like to blame my lack of of grant funding on on that conspiracy theory. Um, But there's, what I find really interesting about the California curriculum question is that we aren't talking about American history. Yes. As such, yes. we're not talking about the Revolutionary War, for example. No. We're not talking about George Washington's ownership of slaves. Yes. We're not talking about the history of plantations and the slave trade. Yes. We're not talking about the Civil War. You know, these these stories about the United States and the and U.S. history yes. are, you know, these are debates yes. that Americans have. Um, but this is we're talking about Indian history, yes. and. That's what I find so interesting, I think, about about this particular debate. You said earlier on that it was a big deal that a diaspora community manages to change the state education system and, and, and the state education syllabus. Is there a way, you know, they may, this may or may not be the case, is there a way in which the implied Islamophobia which underlines the the demand to go back to the word India against the word South Asia. Does that Islamophobia resonate more strongly in a post nine eleven America, where which is, where Islamophobia is not an unheard of phenomenon? Yeah. So, um, I mean, not making an explicit connection here, but for example, in the Midwest, uh, a Sikh Kudwar was. Yes set on fire, um, and the social media response was, um, you racist, you're so ignorant, Sikhs aren't Muslims. Yes. <laughs> the implication being, you should have picked a real mosque, yes. idiot. Yes. Like, as opposed to, don't set religious places of worship on fire, yeah. you jerks. Yeah. Like, it's... it's yes. Um, so you know, it's it's sort of we we went we talked about this before, sort of in in all the various birther attacks on Obama, and all the various attacks accusing Obama of being a Muslim. The only person I remember in two thousand eight was Colin Powell, who it, it it took him to say he's not, and it wouldn't matter if he was. Yeah. Uh, but nobody else, either on the mainstream left or on the mainstream right, felt able to say that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the, that's, it's so obviously Islamophobic. But at the same time, there's this sort of, on the left, kind of in the yeah. secular world, yes. 
accuracy is more important than some sort of, you know, seemingly ideological anti-racism. So it doesn't matter, you know, whether or not it's okay for an American president to be a Muslim is is unimportant in this kind of secular ideology. What's important is that they're wrong. And you need... You need facts, and yeah. facts are all that matter. And being yeah. right and accurate yeah. is all that matters. Yeah. Of course, it hides and, and allows Islamophobia to continue. Yes. Because if the American president isn't a Muslim, then it's all okay. Yes. We can continue yes. not liking Muslims, right? Yes. I think there's part of that. There's also a sort of a strength in numbers and importance of the diasporic community in California um, in terms of the economic value here. So there's a a huge contingent of tech workers, um, IT professionals, computer scientists, engineers, academics, um, who who now make their homes in California for good and who will raise their children in California and send their kids to to California's public schools. Yes. Um, many of whom work for big tech companies and startups and mm-hmm. oil companies and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there... Part of it might well be the demographics of California. California no longer has a, according to census, racial yeah. majority. California is a very kind of diverse... Yeah. According to the numbers, place. Yes. Um, so electorally speaking, yeah. California is changing very rapidly. Um, yeah. But I don't. Kn- I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure if there's an overt or yeah. even kind of approaching overt Islamophobia here in the support yeah. for this particular um, claim. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is the power of identity politics. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think California in particular has been very successful in using identity yeah. politics um, to promote ideas of equal rights and civil rights while allowing yeah. neoliberalism to destroy the Bay yeah. Area. But also, I mean, the, you know, the, the, which gets to the heart of certainly the problem I have and I think you have with identity politics as well, which is this only works because the Hindu diaspora has managed to gain enough economic privilege in order to be able to do this. Yeah. The Muslim South Asian immigrant, generally speaking, hasn't acquired as much economic privilege, certainly certainly in Britain, and therefore their voice is less easily heard. Yes, and what's really interesting, when I mean, there's, there's very um, kind of long-standing... Um, yeah. Diaspora communities from Iran, yeah. from Afghanistan, yeah. you know, going back to the 70s and 80s, um, multiple generations now of yeah. um, diasporic Persian families and, um, I mean, of, of many religious backgrounds, but many of whom are Muslim. Yes. Um, people who were um, refugees from yeah. conflicts in the 70s and 80s in Iran and Afghanistan. Yes. Similar um socioeconomic backgrounds, a yes. lot of middle and upper middle class um, professional families yes. moved to the Bay Area. Yes. Yes. Um, 
But as far as I know, and obviously listeners send us in the right direction if you know more than we do about this, there's not a, a core group of Afghani um, refugee families from the late 1980s who have successfully lobbied the California mm. government to include particular yeah. elements of Afghan history yeah. in the curriculum yeah. or to teach the Cold War in a particular yeah. way or to, you know, yeah. there's, this is unique, yes. I think. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, part of me thinks that this has, part of the story has to do with the the relationships between America and the home countries of these various diaspora communities, you know. Uh, India is much is a much more significant player in the global economic marketplace than Afghanistan or Iran or wherever. Yeah. And if this um, and if this narrative is is similar to yeah. the narrative in India yes. then there is a consistency yes. here in it, terms of where the nation states are. There absolutely is. You know, I haven't been following the story necessarily, but it would not surprise me at all if the California story was reported in the Indian media as another example of diasporic success. Yeah. You know, the hometown people going and making good and, you know, look at how, how much they've achieved and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. There there was, of course, I mean, we need to say in this it goes without saying, but we do need to say that the Indian and South Asian diaspora in the United States didn't didn't agree entirely. Yeah. This was a well organized yes. effort yeah. on the part of um, some motivated and focused yes. people and organizations with a yes. lot of resources who dedicated themselves to making this particular yeah. thing happen yeah. but there was definitely opposition yes. certainly opposition from Dalit activists and uh, opposition from academics as well yeah and, uh, yeah academic historians and citation study specialists and, and so on yeah I think we're done yeah I think so uh, thanks for listening and you know as as always let us know your thoughts let us know your questions tell us if we've Make horrible true. errors. Yes. Um, tweet at us. Comment on our Facebook SoundCloud page pages. Um, write to us on iTunes. Wherever you find us, let us let us know your thoughts, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardri. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.